Genre Hustle, your virtual sci-fi fantasy writers group. I'm Anton. I'm AP. And I'm Chris. And back again, we have Cody Sisko and Allison Rose. Thank you for coming back. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us again. And today we're talking about psycho sci-fi, which is a subgenre. And I'm going to need you all to explain. (laughs) Since you've invented it. (laughs) We we invented it. Did we invent it? I think, yeah. We were talking about it, and then we weren't sure if it was real or not. And then I think it's going to be real (laughs) from now on. It is now. It's real now. It's about to be real. It's on tape. You heard it here first. (laughs) You can't get more real than that. I'll try a baseline definition and then please elaborate. But um, I think for me, it's um, science fiction that's told from a shaky point of view due to mental illness or some other aspect affecting the the characters and how they perceive the world. Yeah, there's kind of an unreliable narrator element to it, isn't sure. there? Um, I think it has a lot to do with um, people who can be uh, almost harnessed by these greater, you know, authorities and, mm-hmm. and, and trying to uh, lock down people that have mental illnesses and keep them to the side to kind of clean up the regular society. That's kind of a common theme in both of our series. Yeah, and it's it's one that I see more now in other writers that I didn't recognize for what it was before. So, for example, um, several of Philip K. Dick's stories are from the point of view of a, of a character that just really is having trouble making sense of reality. Mm-hmm. And it's not, the, you know, and, you're, and it's very unclear whether it's a problem internal or external to that character. Mm. And that's that uncertainty is something I like because I feel like it's a good um, engine for getting readers curious and interested about the story world in particular. And I like what you said. So, because we've before we started this, we were I, I was, as usual, confused because we didn't want to call this dystopian fiction or dark future. But what you just said, Cody, makes a lot of sense in that. Because when I think of dystopia future, that's very broad, meaning the whole world has, you know, turned on its heel. It has gone to shit. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one is very specific to, as you said, the point of view of the character, which I think is a big distinction. Yeah, it makes it an extra challenge to write also, because you want, you know, with any character, you want to get inside their head. You want to mm-hmm. help um, readers step into their shoes, it's an added complexity to have that be an unstable place and to try to convey that in fiction. Absolutely. I think uh, both because both of our stories don't take place necessarily in current present time, um, it is it is a you know man versus the world kind of thing, but also a man versus himself. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's that duality also happening. And what do you think, I'm just going to jump right to the challenges because you mentioned that, like, what do you think is... I get that th- there's that extra element where it's because it's an unreliable narrator. How do you balance that between telling the story in kind of a way that the reader can follow it, but also keeping the character kind of off balance, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. term? I I mean, you, I think there are choices to make. I tend to go towards the solution, which is to have multiple character points of view mm-hmm. so that you can step outside that specific um, character's viewpoint and see the whole situation from another angle. I also, um, like if you've read like Frank Herbert or some other novels that have the, um, the epigraphs mm-hmm. right up front in the chapter that, right. that is like an artifact from the story world that shows up and that gives you a new lens on what's happening that you couldn't get from that, that one character's, you know, um, distorted point of view. Hmm. And for the multiple uh, POVs, are they first person? Uh, I haven't I haven't really experimented with that yet. No, I write in third person typically. Ex- well, 
my longer my novels are written in third person, um, but my, my short stories tend to be more first person for whatever reason. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah, yeah. for me. It's much more internalized. Um, I write all of my well, uh, at least my book series, uh, the Tick series, is first person, and it's very much internalized. Um, so I tend to f- filter everything through my main character's point of view, um, which I enjoy because. You know, as just as an individual, you are not always going to be so aware of everything that's happening around. Mm-hmm, so right. everything that my character knows as what's happening in the world is only from her perspective. Uh-huh. And it, it's like a peppering of information that comes to her from the outside world. So it's, it's very much, you know, she is dealing with whatever internalized darkness or whatever she's dealing with. And then there's this extra outside influence that just keeps badgering her from the outside. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we share a sci-fi brain in many ways. One of the ways is that both of the, our novels are set in places where lies and how a character finds out about them and and grapples with them, what to do about them. That's a key part of the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're talking about challenges of writing this because obviously um, I am writing my series very much filtered through my main character. So I have to be very well aware of what is happening externally. So I'm basically writing two different paralleling storylines because I have to know. You have to know which what's happening happening in the story, but then your main character is experiencing it and she may not be reliable or she may be... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, not seeing it for what it really is. Yeah, right, right. So I I have to know the grander scope of things, but then then you just go very much internalized and, and, and try and write it from her perspective. And I, and I try to write it from, from the, as best a perspective um, that I know. Um, I'm not writing this character as somebody who is, you know, somebody that's not um, anybody that I, I have ever known or sure. it's, yeah. uh, it's very personal to yeah. me too. So Yeah, well, and it's first person, so it's in the moment, in their mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very, mm-hmm. um, what's the word I want to say? It's very impactful because mm-hmm. you're always in the action. You're always in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, so Allison, why don't you give us a quick little synopsis of your series in the book, and then maybe we'll have you read a short passage so sure. the readers can get a sense of it, what it's what it's like. Uh, the series, it's a three-part series called the Tick series. The first book is just called Tick, T-I-C-K. The second book is called The Vice. Third book, forthcoming soon, hopefully, <laughs> is going to be called Mark. Um, and the... The title Tick comes from the phrase, what makes a person tick? Um, and it takes place in near future Los Angeles, actually. I would say like 50, 75 years in the future. So there's a lot of um, cross parallels from what you know is today Los Angeles and then what it could be imagined in the near future. And it centers around um, a 17-year-old girl named Joe Bristol who wants to be a fine art painter. But she's living in the future, which is a very much digitalized Anything, you know, artistry, there's no real place for a fine art painter. So she's very much challenged trying to find her place in the world, trying to find a place for her expression, her artistic expression. Um, and she's also living in this society where it's, it's kind of an Orwellian sort of situation where there's a lot of um, fear of cyber terrorism. There's this grand company that promotes their security of, you know, personal security and taking out the cyber terrorists and... Um, so one of the things that they do in this future society is they will pluck out people from society that they suspect will be potential cyber terrorists or any way harmful to the society 
send them to what they call the brain adjusters, splice <laughs> that, them up. That doesn't sound ominous. <laughs> nope. Who doesn't want to go to the brain adjuster? <laughs> brain adjusters. Just an adjustment. Uh, they'll splice and dice them and, uh, and, and remove the part of their, you know, rewire them a little bit. So that, Ugh, remove creepy. that part. Yeah. Shove them back into society. So and they're fine. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. They're very happy after that. So uh, my main character, Joe, has a very big fear of that happening to her. And the reason why is when her tick is uh, when she becomes stressed or feels threatened, she has she falls into a vision of killing this person. And she is afraid that eventually this vision is going to be acted out physically, and then it starts to, and we don't know what's going to go from there. Um, and so she is afraid of being spliced and diced, because what will happen to her, her artistic ability at that point? Cool. Do you want to read us a little passage? Sure. Uh, So this is a chapter, or part of the first chapter. I'm just going to jump right into it here. All at once, my body turns into stone, as though Jake is Medusa, snake hair and all. Mr. Torres is stuck in his position in the hallway, watching as Jake drags me down the stairs, straight into my impending doom. I can see the concern in Mr. Torres' eyes, and even though I doubt he has any thought that I am a cyber terrorist, he must know that these new scanners are bad news. And if he thinks they're bad news... Then they are my wor- the worst. And if he thinks they're bad news, then they are the worst news for me. Because for as long as I can remember, I have feared the day when the brain scanners discover my tick. I have been through many brain scans in my 16 years of life. In the PEED program, they're simply part of the curriculum. But those scanners are basic, aimed at the outer regions of the pr- prefrontal cortex to evaluate a student's learning capacity. But an anti-cyber-terrorism agency scanner is another beast entirely. These scanners are meant to peer into every neuron, every signal pathway, every cell of tissue to find a glitch in the hardware. To ACTA, if you have an abnormality in your brain, you have the capacity to be a threat to national security. I don't call it an abnormality. I call it a tick. I don't remember when I started using the term probably back in elementary prep when my teacher's husband left her in the middle of the night, and the next day she sold her house, shaved her head, and became an interpretive dance performer on the Venice Beach boardwalk. One of the parents said, Sometimes all you need is a single moment in time to learn what really makes a person tick. And the term just kind of stuck in my mind. I wish my tick were something harmless, like having the need to be a free bird and never stay in one place for too long. I wish I were driven by money or motivated by fear, or that I straddled the edge of insanity right at that place where it meets genius. But I don't have a normal tick. I have visions of killing people. I know it's not normal to think about killing people, and I do a pretty damn good job convincing people I'm perfectly fine. After all these years of brain scans, no one has discovered the darkness in my mind. I've had these visions for as long as I could remember, and never has anyone been any wiser to it. And I made certain of it because I have always feared what they'd do to me if they were to discover it. They'd scramble my neurons, pick apart my brain to fix me of my abnormality, and release me as a splintered version of my former self. I'll never be able to paint anything worthwhile after that. I'll lose all sense of myself. I'll be useless. I have kept my horrible tick a secret for this long, but times have changed, and my luck is running out. Whoa, that's Great. creepy. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, so... I can see how that would be challenging. You have this character, it's very like very close in her perspective and her morality may or may not align with the reader. 
Yes. Right? Which I find really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. I have had readers say, you know what, Joe is just not a likable character. And which is really interesting because she is not always motivated to do the right thing. And she's she's very self-serving. She's very she's got to work focus on her self-preservation, especially when, you know, shit blows up literally and she (laughs) has to find her way to, you know, survive. She's not a character that's out to save the world, which is different than a lot of dystopian fiction featuring female characters, especially young, you know, teenage girls where they're all just supposed to save the world. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, um, so it, it is different in that respect where she's much more concerned about her own internal conflicts and surviving what is happening with this external conflict. Too. But it's a great draw. I mean, as a reader, like that's your immediate, I mean, just what you read there, like I'm immediately drawn into her because like, okay, this is a big, this is a big problem she's yeah. got. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fear and, and she's motivated by wanting to paint, but then also this fear of what's going to happen to her if she's not able to do it any longer. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's very personal to me also because I, you know, grew up wanting to be an, uh, an artist and having this sort of expression and not being able to find a place for it and then worried, you know, it, it also parallels say, um, antidepressants too uh-huh. and how that can sometimes stifle your mental capacity Absolutely. and your muse. And so I used a lot of that as an influence for it also because that's what she's afraid of. Yeah, no, I get the parallels there and the parallels with like sort of, teenage angst and this idea of like what am I going to be and what is it going to happen to me and that sort of thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I get so frustrated with this whole concept of the strong female character too because it just seems so cliche and um, flat really because not every teenage girl is going to be likable she's going to do things (laughs) that you're just like what the hell are you doing (laughs) yeah yeah and also I think people tend to conflate uh, strong female character with just a female that happens to be able to kick everybody's ass. Yeah. And that's yeah. not necessarily original or necessarily that interesting to me, but or even accurate or really. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool though. Great voice. I really, thanks. Uh, that's awesome. Um, Cody, do you want to, uh, give us a little synopsis of your, your sure. book and read a little? Yeah. I, I selected a very short section. Now I'm like, Oh no. Um, Give it, tell us so, the story. What's okay. So the series is called Resonant Earth Series, and the first book is Broken Mirror. And it follows a young man who is growing up in the aftermath of a very deadly massacre in a small town in semi-autonomous California carried out by a quote-unquote madman. And after this massacre, um, anyone who share a specific genetic abnormality that they think predisposes people to violence um, is controlled, locked up, and sedated basically in various like severe forms. There's a classification system. Um, and so this young man has been diagnosed with this disorder and um, has is benefited from being the, the, the heir to a biotechnology company. Um, and they put a lot of effort into trying to figure out what's wrong with him and to try and find a cure. And they haven't been able to do so. Um, his grandfather spearheaded that effort. And then, one day when he's um, in his early 20s, his grandfather dies after closing down the whole operation. And um, it kind of throws him into a spiral. And he tries to figure out, well, why did this happen? And it leads him towards answers of what is actually mere resonance syndrome that is wrong with him and, and a broader conspiracy about um, controlling people with mental illness. So um, 
there's a sequel right now, which is <laughs> called, uh, it's called Tortured Echoes. And then the third book is due out next year, and that is called um, Altered Bodies. And that one gets much more into kind of like brain machine interfaces mm -hmm. and artificial intelligence and um, the the freedoms we give up for access to whatever's new gadget on the market. You had me at semi-autonomous California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I didn't mention that part because it, I was like, is, does this fit? But um, so it is an alternate history. Yeah. It imagines that um, civil rights were won post-civil post, um, war. Oh, interesting. And so minorities and women gained the right to vote. And, and basically the landed white elites of the South, their power structures were dismantled. Um, very early on, right after the Civil War. Very early on, and then there's a, a sort of counter reaction to that as as the U.S. as the um, United States becomes less imperialistic. There's a counter reaction, and it um, disintegrates into nine different nations. There's a repartitioning um, in the 30s, and that has led to the semi-autonomous California, the Republic of Texas, the Greater Ohio Constitutional League, <laughs> the N New England Commonwealth, and a bunch of these other. Oh my God! Um, How much fun was it? To I was just going to say that was so fun. Going he makes it easy thing. for himself. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, and so so yeah, so the the story plays out kind of on, along this path of being both a mystery of what is what is mere resonance syndrome and why is it a problem, um, but also kind of a personal mystery of what happened to Victor's grandfather. Was he murdered? And what is that all about? So I can read a very short yeah. passage. This is from like uh, chapter two of Broken Mirror, and it's a flashback. He's gotten into Victor Eastmore has gotten into a fight at school. Um, they've just been watching some very jingoist videos about um, you know if you see something, say something, and mm -hmm. if your if your um, fellow student seems like they have a problem, go tell someone. Um, so he gets in a fight after that, and he's in the hospital, and for the moment, he's alone. When they arrived at the hospital, a female nurse led Victor inside and down a corridor, where a pair of brightly lit, near-white, Helios light strips ran along the ceiling like burning hot steel rails. She brought him to a small examination room and asked for his name and mesh ID, entered them on a type pad, and then examined and treated his eye. She left the room and shut the door. Victor looked down at his hands. Specks of dried blood hid under a thumbnail. He picked at it with another nail, but tiny red stains remained in the hard-to-reach crevice. He scratched again, deeper. New blood seeped from the worn-away skin. Pain flared as sparks from his fingers. He watched them bloom with each painful dig. Beautiful, ephemeral, multicolored, like confetti aflame. They were his secret magic tricks and worth the pain they cost. Nice. That's great. It's funny, we talked, I can't remember which episode we talked, but we talked about details. Mm. And that's that's so right on topic there, where it's like this one moment where he's just like, and you can just imagine him sitting there, and it's like so focused in. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I write a lot of quiet moments. I think there's a lot of action in my stories. And when one of those moments is like pivotal, it can have a real effect. It's a, it's a great balancing. Yeah. Know? Yeah, what do you think about when you're alone reveals a lot about a character. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that this, you know, what we're looking for in, in stories that might be, you know, part of this genre is like a kind of deep understanding of, of psychology mm -hmm. and how that interrelates to technology. 
Yeah, and again, going back to what you said before, I'm just going to echo it again, is I love that it's the personal of it. I mean, I think, yeah. you, you know, if when you talk about these character-driven stories, to add this another dimension to it, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, there was a, an author in our Made in LA group who, when asked, um, talked about how every story is a version of a character trying to find themselves, mm-hmm. um, whether they're aware of it or not. Yeah. Um, and that I'm like, Oh, I would, wish I'd heard that like five years ago. <laughs> I might have understand what I was doing a little bit better. Yeah. I've heard of the hero's journey, but now you're putting it in terms I understand. Yeah. So what drew you guys to this type of writing? I mean, this is your first, uh, series that you've put out. So how did you both land in, in this, uh, subgenre? <laughs> no We're looking at each other, smiling, being like, do we tell them? Can we let this secret out? <laughs> you know, for me, it was kind of haphazard. It just fit the story. Um, I'd started writing a s- historical fantasy first, and then I write contemporary fiction also. It, it comedy. It, it doesn't. I don't really. I didn't find the genre, and then decided to put the story into it. I felt I had the character. I had her challenges. I had um, her tick. I had this fact that she killed people, and then she wanted to paint, and it made sense to put it into the future. And then that's from, from there is how I, I built the world around her. It was, it was so much more centered on her, which is why it is so much more a character-driven story because I started with her and with her issues. And, and uh, I wanted to also inflate the possibilities of things that could go wrong to her. And future science fiction allows for that because, you know, we, uh, that's what it's science fiction open. is. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I can right. imagine all kinds of things, you know, <laughs> anything is possible. Um, so that, and that made it a lot more dire, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I write a lot of near future. That's kind of what I do as well. And I struggle with trying to figure out how much of that extrapolation I need to put into the text and how much to leave to the reader to just kind of make up for themselves like mm-hmm, you can you can mm-hmm. very easily do in doing this type of stuff fall into info dumping chapters of like oh yeah <laughs> this is how it all works and right i need to explain this to you when you really don't necessarily especially if it's about strongly about a, a character's journey rather than some right big idea well and especially in first person too because right. that, yeah. unless that person is stopping and thinking well you know when they invented the hover car you yeah. know? right <laughs> right oh god yeah <laughs> No, but even when you're in third person like yours, I mean, you don't want to spend time info dumping a bunch of stuff that doesn't really serve what's happening with that one character. It seems like in psycho sci-fi, it's really more about the psychology and the character and everything else is just kind of nice uh, window dressing. Yeah, I guess it's a constraint about where we allow the story to go. And um, these ones that we've written thus far have tended to be fairly closely linked to their interior state of consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, mine was fun because I, uh, I like I said, it's near future Los Angeles. So it's, um, it is, I, I tried not to imagine LA being so vastly different. So you still have gas driven cars called gassers because they're now, you know, kind of ancient in that time, but they're still there. And then you have the automatic highways with self-driven cars and, um, you know, spy drones following everybody around. So it's not so drastically different, but it's enough that you're like, okay, well, that's 
probably could work. Right, could the 405 go. still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's all automated. So right. you just yeah. sleep in your car and right. just drive along. Um, and your commute's now four hours. Right. <laughs> but you sleep through half of it. You so sleep fine. through half of it. <laughs> Get some work done on the way. Right, right. Um, I think uh, the, the cool thing about writing first person is you are, well, the, it's cool, but it's also challenging is you, everything has to be told almost like I'm walking through this story. Right. Yeah. So it can't all be up front. And the, the reader's going to have questions of why and how, but um, I think as writers, I think a lot of writers don't give enough credit to to readers to kind of fill Absolutely in. Absolutely. And, and then that, be yeah. curious about wanting to know. I mean, you have to follow through with that because they're really going to hate you if you're like <laughs> so thin on details in the beginning yeah. and never yeah. actually follow through with it. Um, but if you if they get comfortable with the idea that you are slowly doling out this information over the course of the story, whenever the character comes across it, mm-hmm. um, then then it, then you right. are you really know, building it. You have to know when to give them the information, but it's also we call that the promise. Like, is yes. there something there that's going to keep me as a reader yes. keep going? Because you're going to fulfill some sort of you know promise that you made to me early on. Right, right. And do you find it's especially tough with an unreliable narrator because you have to hold back even more. Or I'll even give inaccurate information at yes. times, and then yes. yeah, and then but you but when when the inaccuracy comes to light, or that character learns a new truth, I mean it's it's very touchy. How do you make sure that that's communicated to the reader that they went through that same transformation of their understanding of the story without feeling like you tricked them or cheated right. them, yeah. right. but that they're yeah. coming to it on their own because they're with this character in this journey? It's I mean it's fun. That's like advanced. Yeah, when you do, <laughs> yeah. No, when you do that, that's pretty good. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love reading that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I've definitely read some some books where I was irate at the end of the book. <laughs> where I was like, are you kidding me? Um, it's not speculative fiction, but there, there's an English writer named Martin Amos who wrote a book, and it's basically the entire thing is told from a first-person perspective, mm-hmm. and he's talking about how great he is and all this stuff. And at the very end, he's like, but actually, this is what really happened. And oh, it God. was all like, and I'm just like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, but, so it's a tricky thing to do, especially yeah. I think, you know, when you're dealing with a character that we may not trust them, so you're setting yourself an absolutely a, a difficult task on top of the task of yes. just writing a book. Yeah. I, think, you know? I think we, we whether through, stumbling through, or <laughs> for whatever reason, the two of us de- decided with our first books to be in the middle of really challenging material that, you know, I, I feel like every, in every book kind of pushes you to improve. Um, but that was, that was not wise. <laughs> <laughs> we had to do it all over It was again. a terrible <laughs> life choice, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Being an author is yeah. not a wise choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But sometimes those stories, you just get hooked on them yeah. and, and you want to keep going and see where they, they lead you. Yes, yes. If the, char- the character really is saying, tell my story, tell my story. And you, you have to, you want to. And uh, if it, people enjoy it and are relating to it. And I, I think with the like the unrelatable or the unreliable character, well, uh, both unrelatable yeah. and <laughs> unreliable, um, there has to be some kind of element where you're like, I see myself in this person yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there has to be some draw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you forgive them for their misgivings or their misinformation or their, mm. you know. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've talked about unlikable versus relatable. Mm-hmm. So you said you had a character that some people might find unlikable, but I'm sure that what she's going through is very relatable. Which is unfair, isn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're not always unli- or, you know, unlikable, yeah. but we are relatable. <laughs> there are those characters that you love to hate, too. Yes, yep. yes. That, yep. you know, used in the right moment or the right place, that can be good. But rarely are those characters um, main characters, I feel. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes there are, but yeah, because it's I don't I don't want to actively be angry while I'm reading <laughs> over a sustained period of hours. That's not the emotion you go for reading a book, just furious. Pro tip: if you're reading a book that makes is... you angry, it's the wrong one for you. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys have two of your three book series out. Uh, what are your future plans for the series? So mine doesn't end at three. Oh, I'm it's, sorry. <laughs> it's roughly sketched. Four, five, six are roughly sketched. It may need a seventh. But wow. so so part of no problem there. Part of my decision is after this third one comes out next year is I mean, I'm ambivalent about it. I really want to keep motoring towards the finish, but I also have these other novels that I've started that I feel like would be important to focus on too. So I don't basically stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> yep. But yep. that's it where my mind is right. now. That's yeah. the question on my mind. And, and your, your third is, is on, in progress, right, Allison? Yeah, yeah there's a rough sketch. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Third, third book of the Tick series. Um, yeah, so I mean, I just barely finished releasing Vice this year. Yeah, it, was it, made, year. it, it made it to the Festival of Books. That's right, it did. It was amazingly enough. Um, but yeah, so it's 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 a... It's it's coming, but same same as with Cody, you know. Uh, I have other other projects that I'm always working on, you know, peripherally, sure. and uh, it's it's tough. Yeah, it's there's. I feel like there's a compounding effect with um, the challenges of writing something that come up again and again, and then making time for it. And like when both of those challenges are knocked down, it feels like you're flying forward. But when both of those happen at once, you're just stuck, and there's no way to get out of it. I feel like because my series, uh, especially starting with Tick, I decided to make it so internalized that I really have to get into the headspace of the character, which is a lot more than... Because I am a total pantser. I don't know who oh, in yeah. this room is a plotter or a pantser. Oh, we have been over these. Yeah. 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 So it's yes. gotten a little ang- heated at times. Yeah, talk about an angry read. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, the, the potter versus uh, plotter versus pantser. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll get into it. No, we all no, get no, into no, it. Just, it's, it's a hard thing to be a pantser writing a three book of series. Sure, that is yeah, science sure, fiction, yeah. um, and it's it's really tough. But but then you're not locked in to plans you made in the past when things might change in your own brain about where you think the story should go. <laughs> Which is why Vice uh, had like three different incarnations of this story before <laughs> yeah. I finally got the final one out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they came to us fully formed, it would be very different. Well, Tick did come to me fully formed. Yeah. I wrote Tick, the first draft, 90 some odd words in three and a half weeks. Wow. Whoa. It That's flew, ridiculous. Flew which is why writing Vice that took me three years was a very different situation. I'm way more familiar with that process. <laughs> yes. yeah. I feel like it's the challenge. Like when you learn more of your craft, you know, there's more going on in your brain about like what to avoid and what to do. And it complicates it for yourself because you're more aware True. of what you're doing. True. Sometimes if you're just drunk on your story, though, which is, <laughs> you know, yeah. onto the page. Yeah. But. Where can people buy your books? Amazon really for me is the best place to find it. Ebook, paperback, um, yeah. My uh, author page, Allison Rose. Search Allison Rose Tick or the Tick series. 
My website is thegirlandthebook.com. And then I'm on Instagram. It's my most used place for social media is Allison Rose Writes. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N. Two L's. And how about you, Cody? Uh, anywhere books are sold. Uh, I think you can pick up a copy from the public library here in Los Angeles, too. Uh-huh. And Ooh, I once cool. did some internet sleuthing. And there's a couple of libraries in the the middle of the country that also have it for oh. whatever reason. Oh, nice. What did you get for Googling yourself? <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. I would have had no idea. Um, so, yeah, any bookstore, they're, they're online. They're on Amazon. Um, if you want to find more about me, uh, my website's codysisco.com. That's C-O-D-Y-S-I-S-C-O.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and um, Instagram and Facebook. And um, you might see me pop up online related to Bookswell, which is a literary events and media production company that I started. Um, we focus on mainly liter- literary events in L.A. So... Um, if you ever see anything weird, it's me toggling between accounts being like, where am I? And who needs to hear what I have to say? <laughs> sure. Well, sure. That yeah. brings up an interesting topic that I just want to touch on before we go is, so you're, you're both writers, obviously. As, and I'm sure everybody listening is a writer and we all know how much time and effort that takes up in your life. How do you, find balance in doing all these outside projects Bookswell and uh, made in LA which I don't know if we've talked about on this episode but um, you guys have a lot of extracurriculars happening how do you how do you focus in and get the writing done with all that going on we have on? very supportive husbands mm-hmm. <laughs> that helps, <laughs> that helps. That's a good start um, marry mean, someone it, with a real job uh, <laughs> mornings I feel like are really good because they're the one time of day when you haven't had everything pass through your brain in terms of like just conversations, media, all of that. So if I can get any writing done, it's usually in the morning and it's usually because I've thought about where the next chapter needs to go and I'm ready to get it onto page. Um, I'm not so good with like an unplanned, I just need to write something. Like I need to know what I need to write. I need to have thought about it. I need to have like lived in that scene for a while to put it down. Instead of just wasting your time staring at the computer screen. <laughs> yeah. That's always Twitter. a great feeling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter, right? Twitter's writing, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Can we, I mean, I do find it really fascinating, though, the writing community on Twitter. It, and just it, it takes so many forms. There's like yeah. people who use it. They're like, I'm just going to inflame everything. But that keeps me in in the light um um, and then there's you know the the super supportive like just like and re-like and all of that and i I just i'm like we're not talking about writing though yeah yeah the follow trains the like hey cupcakes or muffins so (laughs) yeah so i try when i'm on to be about like something that's going to happen or like something that i care about a lot um but that i feel like i'm missing out on like just the things that you should do for self-promotion but see in some morning writing Listen, I'm getting up every day at six o'clock. What are you writing? I'm meditating first. I'm doing some coffee. yoga. I did that coffee. Oh, that's coffee a given. Yeah, it's important. And yeah, it's it's all coming together. It's all coming together. <laughs> Check back in in six w- months. <laughs> how do you feel, Allison? How do you feel about the editing process? In general, <laughs> yeah. Because like like, do you enjoy more getting the story down as the first act of creation, or do you enjoy more the like? fixing it up and making it better and making it like, you know, solid. I don't enjoy either. It depends. It really depends. Like, like I said, writing tick was just, it just happened and it just came out. Um, didn't really have to think too much about it. The editing process for that book took about eight months mm-hmm. to 
Because that was the point when people said, make it a series, don't leave it a standalone. So I had to do a lot of readjusting with story. But I think what's really fun about editing, I don't really call it editing because it's really Right, rewriting. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely. And and you kind of you. There are moments you get to the end of the book and you're like, oh my god, it all fits together. <laughs> so then it's, a, but then it's a patchwork process of of trying to reconnect all these loose ends. Yeah, and, and it's excruciating, but <laughs> but you get better at it. I, I found that I've gotten better at it over the years, a lot quicker at um, you know e- even just getting to some point in the story and going, oh, I need to go back to this point because this is where this is going to work better and. So I, I'm a lot more skilled at it, I think, mm-hmm. than I was because it's it's when you're first starting, it's really hard. <laughs> How about you? What is? What I'm is not your sure favorite? it gets easier, but I think maybe the challenges change. I, I like the part in the process where I finally am bringing it out mm. and getting feedback on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually wait a while before that happens until I feel comfortable with it, but at that point. Um, you know, because you never know how any individual reader is going to react to what you wrote. So, you know, and sometimes they pick up on things that I was like, well, I, I thought that was deeply buried, but maybe, you know, mm. maybe yeah. it's too much on the nose that I need to dial it down. So I like that part of it. Or the parts that they're like, you, this is, this is terrible. And you're like, oh, but I thought you were just going to, for, you know, pass over that. <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> that gives you that. like, it gives you permission to just delete that scene. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. okay, well now, now it's better. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> It's once it's confirmed, yeah, yeah, and and a lot of times, you know, it's a confirmation of a sneaking suspicion you wouldn't admit to yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. and you're like, okay, now that it's out there, right? Three of the four readers have come back and said it, and you're like, okay, it's, it's yeah. there. It is. It's almost nice when that aligns because you're like, okay, so the, I at least knew what yeah. was going on here, and it's like training you on how to do the process yep. for yourself. Sure. Yeah, yes. yeah, like, oh, I'm having this feeling. I know what that is. That's me resisting taking out something that shouldn't be there. Yeah, following your instincts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to learn that it's tough. It doesn't mm-hmm. just show up. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, listening to it and then actually knowing how to use it because you, you'll know we we've all been so um, influenced by stories in general. So we know when something doesn't work. We'll watch a movie and be like, "That was terrible." Right. You don't really always know why, right. but it, the more you learn, more you listen to it, the more you act on it, then you're like, "This this is what would actually make that better." And so that's the skill I think cause yeah. as far as writing enough times and rewriting and you learn how to actually act on that. So when you're going to, when you're in the process of writing this third book, is there anything about what we talked about with like psycho sci-fi that you're going to do differently? Oof, that is a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's trying to get me to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually looking for some advice for my (laughs) third book so that I don't have to think about it myself. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, the second book, uh, so the first the first book does focus m- much on Joe's, you know, concern about this um, her brain being mis- scrambled, um, and and in the second book you actually see a lot more people who have had this procedure done to them and how that affects them. And so in the third book, I really want to try and better integrate um, the people that that had this done to them and are trying to reestablish parts of themselves that they felt were lost and, and kind of almost reignite those neurons in their brains and that interest, uh, creativity and things. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I don't really know where I'm going with it. <laughs> She's panting it. It's happening right now. So that was the episode. This has been the genre hustle. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to The Genre Hustle. You can find us on our website, www.genrehustle.com, on Twitter at Genre Hustle, or on Instagram at Genre Hustle. Our podcast is available on all major streaming platforms, including YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, and send any feedback or suggestions our way. See you next time.